Imagine Dublin, Ireland's legendary capital city, without all its history and its literature. Our last guest today put himself through that little mental test, you could say, as part of his, really, his psychoanalysis of his adopted home. He arrived as a postgraduate student from Canada in the 1980s. He says the city's drenched in literature, penned by the sheer plethora of characters who've used the city streets to create a place rich with the lives of others, as he puts it. Mind you, he also cites the American writer John Berryman, who arrived in 1966, your first day in Dublin is always the worst. It's probably raining. Chris Morash is the author of a new book, Dublin, A Writer's City. He's the Seamus Heaney Professor of Irish Writing at Trinity College, Dublin, and I welcomed him earlier. Hi, Geraldine. Good to be here. Did you have quite such a bad first day yourself in Dublin? Well, I suppose like everybody who arrives off a transatlantic flight, I, I arrived sort of slightly dazed. And I had rooms, a place booked to stay on, on in a dress on Westland Row in Dublin. So I got out of the taxi and I thought, okay, Westland Row. And I thought, this sounds familiar. And I realized I was staying in 15 Westland Row and Oscar Wilde had been born at 21 Westland Row, a few doors uh-huh. up. So, you know, I, I barely put my bags in my room and I thought, okay, I need some aspirin. I need I have a headache, get off a flight. So I walk to the end of the street and there's a little chemist shop there, a little drugstore chemist called Sweeney's Chemist. I thought, this sounds familiar. Then I realized, of course, it's familiar because in Ulysses, in the Lotus Eaters episode of Ulysses, Leopold Bloom goes in there to buy lemon soap for Molly Bloom. Um, and and, and I mean, that's, you know, that was just a short little stretch of city street. Realized the pub across the road, Kennedy's, appears in a short story by Samuel Beckett. Finn's Hotel, where Leopold Bloom, or sorry, where James Joyce met Nora Barnacle, which sets up Ulysses. It happened on the 16th of June, 1904, the day Ulysses is set. It's literally next door. And all of this was on the street where I was staying. So within the first few minutes, literally the first few minutes of arriving in Dublin, I had come across places that had associations with Joyce, with Beckett, with Wilde. I went to the other end of the street. I was looking across the street to where the first production of the Irish Literary Theatre, what becomes the Abbey Theatre, had happened in 1899. So, you know, that brings in Yeats. So, I mean, if it was big game hunting, we would have hit like four of the big five right there in the one street. <laughs> well, I must say that is a, a little bit of a backdrop to your life because you have risen to become, you're a diplomat actually by training, but you've risen to become the inaugural, I think it is, the inaugural Seamus Heaney Professor of Irish Writing at Trinity College. So this became a marvellous, well, sort of almost a vocation for you by the sound of it. It did. And I just became fascinated by the kind of the density of, of literary references and associations in the city. But I also, I think I became fascinated by the way in which knowing the literature allows you to live in the city. To take that example of that street, Westland Row, if I were to put you down the middle of Westland Row today, you would probably not think it's a terribly remarkable street. It's a typical kind of Dublin street, uh, three-story grey brick uh, buildings on both sides, a couple of modern interventions in the street, railway track running over it. It doesn't come alive until you know the stories. And I think that 
is true of a lot of Dublin. That is not a it's not a spectacular city. You know, it's not Paris, it's not Singapore, it's not a city where you go and you just look up and you say, Oh wow, you know, or it's not Sydney and you go, Oh wow, look at where they put this city, you know, with beaches and islands. It's a city that you need to know the stories before it unveils its beauty to you. Well, it's a very flat hmm. city, isn't it? And it's very much in different zones, as you point out in your book. Maybe you could quickly summarise them, uh, because I do think that might help people. Because, I mean, there aren't Yates everywhere, are there? I mean, it's not like no, that. No, 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 that's right. I mean, I think that's the other thing about Dublin that, that really makes it a fascinating city, is that because, unlike London, for instance, Dublin had a sustained period of economic underdevelopment, to put it mildly, from about the end of the 18th century, really from about the 1780s, up until really the early 1990s. So unlike other cities where old buildings get knocked and new ones built and then the new ones knocked and something else built on top of them, in Dublin it's like all the layers or at least remnants of all the layers survived. So the way I think of Dublin is kind of, it's kind of like a cross cut of a tree. There's the old medieval part of the city. I mean, and Dublin's old. I mean, Dublin was founded by Vikings in the ninth century. So it goes way, way back. The old medieval core of the city, that streetscape is still there. And then there's a kind of ring around that where in, in the 18th century, it became necessary to kind of build out from it. So there's the ring of what we can recognize as Georgian Dublin, those um, wonderfully symmetrical streetscapes with the fan lights over the doors, the windows all aligned on either side of the doors. And then in the late 18th, 30th, 19th century, there were two ring canals built in the city. And so you start to get Victorian red brick coming out from beyond the canals. And then you get the kind of eruption of population that happens in the middle of the 20th century. So you get the, the, the kind of 20th century suburbs then spreading out from beyond the Victorian ring. So if you take an aerial view, you know, it's like looking at a tree when you do a cross section. You have the various rings going right down to that heartwood of the old medieval city. And it's all still there, which means for a writer, there's a tremendous resource there. Because if you want to evoke the past, the past is actually still physically present. Yes, you make the point about how much that is, that just is means so much to a writer. Look, I got the f sense from you, but you tell me if I'm wrong, that it was actually quite a cosmopolitan city in many ways. It was, was the second city of the empire. It, it's quite a surprise to realise that. It was full of subcultures as the 20th century unfolded. And I until the rising, the big revolt in 1916. Now, am I right there? Th then it became much more sort of Irish, didn't it? Very much almost, well, I'm going to ask you whether it was nationalist. Have I got that right? Well, I think we t we've tended to overlook the extent to which there, there were a, a, a range of, of ethnicities there. For instance, there was a large Huguenot uh, population in Dublin in the 18th century. So there was actually publishing in French in Dublin in, in the 18th century. Um, there were Dutch immigrants in the 18th century. So in the 18th century, there was this sense of, of, of it being the second city of the empire. Uh, there was a lot of traffic back and forth between London and Dublin in the theatre. 
So, I mean, David Garrick, probably, you know, the most famous, possibly the greatest actor of the 18th century, first played Hamlet on the stage in Dublin. So you get that back and forth flow and you get figures like Edmund Burke and Oliver Goldsmith, you know, moving back between the two cities. The 19th century is when it starts to really stagnate and you start to get this the, the, the nationalist movement developing. And it's really in the 1880s that, that you really start to get a kind of strong nationalist identity in the city. Um, and, and, and that becomes dominant, of course, after, well, the Easter Rising and then the War of Independence, 1921-22. Um, so, yeah, and, and in some ways what's happening now, I mean, Dublin is very cosmopolitan now. I mean, anybody, you know, I often wonder about, you know, people who emigrated from Ireland, say, in the, you know, in, in the 1960s or 50s, coming back to Dublin today. There are, you know, there are 172 languages spoken in Dublin now. Um, uh, you walk down O'Connell Street and, you know, you, you'll hear other languages a lot more than you'll hear English. I mean, Polish is spoken more than the Irish language is now. Um, is that right? You know, man- yeah, it is. Yeah, there are more native speakers of Polish than there are of Irish. You mean of Gaelic, I take it, yeah, do you? Yeah, I have Gaelic, oh, yeah, Gaelic. Yeah, Irish, me. Irish wow. as in Gaelic. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people who speak some Gaelic, but people who would call, you know, count as native speakers, there are actually more native speakers of Polish. Uh, you know, Mandarin, widely spoken, a lot of West African languages. So it, it's become a very cosmopolitan city. And it managed to do that relatively easily. Um, without a lot of the of of the reaction against inward migration that's happened in other places. I mean, there's been some, but not to the same extent. Well, in fact, you say it's become quite professionalised in some ways. And um, the city now also, it has a half a dozen uh, literary festivals every year. It's got uh, a well-established theatre and fringe festival every autumn. Um, the Dublin City Library sponsor the world's richest prize for a single novel, the Dublin Literary Award, and, and so on and so forth, UNESCO City of Literature. So is it recognisable as Dublin? Has it become, how would you, uh, yeah, if you see it in this That's sweep it. of history? That's a really good question, because I think one of the things that contributed to Dublin becoming such a literary city, particularly in the early 20th century, was scale. That the core of the city is relatively small and quite walkable. Um, and in fact, that's one of the things that's happened to the city even post-pandemic. It's become, you know, cyclable as well as walkable. <laughs> you know, it is a city still where if you walk down certain streets, Grafton Street, you'll probably run into somebody you know. So there is a sense that the core of the centre of the city still has the kind of feeling of a slightly overgrown village. And in the early 20th century, that was really, really helpful and productive for writers because, you know, you they would somebody would go to the National Library, they'd meet somebody else they knew who was a writer. That person might be having a kind of open house in their in their house that evening. You could walk to the open house. The writers all knew one another. What has started to happen in Dublin is that centre core of the city has become very expensive to live in. So writers are much more dispersed. You know, I was, I was talking the other day to the poet Paula Meehan, um, and she and her husband, Theo Dorgan, who's also a poet, you know, used to live on Marion Square. And the way she put it to me was, you know, a, a developer bought the house they were in. And while he collected art, he clearly didn't collect artists. 
and and they had to move and now, now they live in, in in one of the suburbs and that is kind of typical of what has happened so i think writers need professionalized structures as you say in order for them to meet so there 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 are as you say a lot of literary festivals there are a lot of writing workshops there are you know creative writing courses and you know the dublin literary award which you know i chair the judging panel for so that's a that's a big event every year as well now i'm going to ask you i'm going to dare to ask you as my final question um what for you who is such a specialist in this, what is the most affecting writing you can nominate that captures Dublin's essence best? There's so much of it. I wonder what you'd isolate. Oh, there's a memoir by a writer named Elizabeth Bowen who grew up in the city in in, in around about the turn of the 20th century, and she calls it Seven Winters. And most people think of Bowen as, as coming from a different part of Ireland where she was associated with a big country house but she actually grew up in the city centre and she has this wonderful perception of a child's view of what it's like to live in this city just as it was changing. And I go back to that time and time again. I just think it's a beautifully haunting sense of the way in which the city can feel like a village sometimes. And at its finest, Dublin still has that sense. It feels intimate. It feels human. And it's that human scale that I think she captures at a particular moment and I think continues to filter through Irish writing still. Well, Chris Marash, it's been fabulous to talk to you and I'll go away and acquire that Elizabeth Bowen. Thank you very much indeed for your time today. Thank you, Geraldine. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.